This is Anne-Marie Lewis, and you are listening to We Are Rivers, conversations about the rivers that connect us, brought to you by American Rivers. One of my favorite memories is listening to my former high school geology teacher, K.O. Ogilby, read me and a group of my classmates an excerpt from the book The Emerald Mile by Kevin Fedarko as we fell asleep in the bottom of the Grand Canyon, gazing up at the many thousands of stars that shone through the pitch black of night. I still remember the haunting words being read into the night by K.O. about the man who led the first expedition down the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon, John Wesley Powell. Lee's Ferry marked the entrance to the landmark that was not only the first great feature in the territory of the United States to have been discovered, but, perhaps fittingly, the very last to be explored. From the moment they entered the Grand Canyon, the walls rose higher, the space between them narrowed, and the scale of everything shifted. By the third day, the walls displayed a horizontally banded palette of some half a dozen colors that ranged from tawny gold to deep maroon and, later, a rose petal pastel that seemed to smolder with an inner fire as if it bore the reflected glare of a furnace deep inside the earth. As the boats penetrated further into this labyrinth, the cliffs were sculpted into dimensions that were both breathtaking and sublime. The deeper they went, the more remote and lost they felt until on August 10th, they arrived at a muddy stream known as the Little Colorado, which entered from the left. Here, at this isolated confluence, surrounded by slabs and pillars that would dwarf all the cathedrals of Europe, Powell inserted his most famous passage into the report that he later published. We are three quarters of a mile in the depths of the earth, and the great river shrinks into insignificance as it dashes its angry waves against the walls and cliffs that rise to the world above. The waves are but puny ripples, and we but pygmies, running up and down the sands or lost among the boulders. We have an unknown distance yet to run, an unknown river to explore. What falls there are, we know not. What rocks beset the channel, we know not. What walls ride over the river, we know not. We were all captivated in our sleeping bags, imagining death, destruction, adventure, and the exciting knowledge of unknown things. We were surrounded by the same canyon walls that Powell once was, by day hearing the haunting calls of canyon wrens, and by night the echoes of side creeks. Ever since that trip, Powell has intrigued me. He was a scholar, professor, and Civil War veteran. In 1868, he became interested in exploring untouched western landscapes to collect scientific information, and, in 1869, at the age of 35, Powell and his team embarked upon one of the most daring adventures in U.S. history, with ten inexperienced boatmen and four poorly equipped boats. Nine hundred miles and three months later, some of them would exit the Grand Canyon, some of them would not. In 1878, Powell published his report on the lands of the arid region. The report advocated for a strategy of settling the West based on scarce water supplies. As Manifest Destiny was taking place with waves of settlers rushing West, Powell hoped the westward movement would slow so that a more methodical approach of organized settlements could form in and around watersheds, rather than just grid lines on an arbitrary map. He recognized that water was the limiting factor of Western population growth and that, If not addressed, the results could be catastrophic. 
and he believed that only settling near water would enable settlers to become actively aware of the scarce resource that they had to conserve. But all of this was too much to internalize for a young nation desperate to expand the endless horizons before it. If Powell's model of growth had been followed, trans-mountain diversion ditches with water bound for cities in arid regions, like Los Angeles, Las Vegas, Salt Lake City, and Phoenix, would not exist. Powell biographer Donald Worcester claims that, quote, We would not have, if Powell's ideas had carried through, any of our huge federal water projects, and we certainly would not have had anything like the massive urban growth that's taken place in the West. End quote. But Powell's vision did not come true. The Colorado River is 1,700 miles long and drains 246,000 square miles, supporting over 36 million people and 5 million acres of agriculture. So the Colorado River is the most important river in the southwestern United States. It's really this crucially important supply of water and source of livelihood for nine states, seven in the United States and two in Mexico. This is John Fleck, an accomplished journalist with a diverse career in water who I interviewed over the phone on a summer Monday afternoon. Aside from recently publishing Waters for Fighting Over and Other Myths About Water in the West, a book about the power and importance of collaboration and water management, John is also the director of water resources at the University of New Mexico. If you look at all the great cities of the western United States, Denver and Salt Lake City, Phoenix, Tucson, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, San Diego, Tijuana, Mexicali. All these places and the big, rich farming regions depend on Colorado River water and depend on water removed from the Colorado River to meet these human needs in other places. And that's the sort of central feature of this human landscape in this land today is water taken out of the Colorado River and used in other places. The Colorado River Basin has countless tributaries that provide a way of life for the many people that live both near and far. The basin includes seven different states, two countries, and nine national parks. You may be wondering, what exactly is a basin? A river's basin is more than just the river itself. The water in a basin begins in the highest regions, like mountains, where water and snowpack are drained from, and eventually flows to a sea, carving the land into a specific signature on its journey. And... In that carving and signature of the river, the surrounding lands are formed. So in the Colorado River Basin, for example, the snowmelt in the Rocky Mountains and the rain that falls in the mountains all flows down into the Colorado River and carves essentially some of the most rugged and arid reaches of the United States as the river travels to the Colorado River Delta and the Sea of Cortez. This is Amy McCoy, the director of AMP Insights, a consulting firm that works throughout the western United States and northern Mexico on the economic, science, and policies of managing river flows for people and nature. Amy helped me to understand the differences between the upper and lower basin. Yes, the Colorado River Basin as a whole is divided into two sub-basins. The upper basin is comprised of Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, and New Mexico, while the lower basin includes Arizona, Nevada, and California. Which is to say... The biggest scale of the river is the whole river. The next scale is the upper basin and the lower basin. And then the next management level are the individual states. But why exactly is a legal difference necessary between the upper and lower basins? So we, we talk about the 
upper and lower basin as being different because they are different in terms of how much water they are using. The upper basin currently uses less water than the lower basin. So we need to refer to the two basins differently in order to acknowledge that fact. In the upper basin and the lower basin, agriculture is the dominant form of water use. But in the lower basin, there are also large municipalities like Phoenix, Las Vegas, and Los Angeles. The upper basin is still mostly in agriculture. The two basins were at first legally divided in the 1922 Colorado River Compact. The, the most important legal structure in the Colorado River Basin is a document called the Colorado River Compact. Which established a line separating the two basins at Lee's Ferry in Arizona, northern Arizona. And the upper basin received 7.5 million acre-feet of water, and the lower basin received the same amount. So the two basins need to manage that amount of water amongst themselves. The way in which the water within those basins is managed is slightly different. So each of the individual states must manage their water budget according to whether or not they're in the upper basin or the lower basin. The formation of the Colorado River Compact was largely due to a prior law that designated that the first settlers to claim a plot of land and water would be guaranteed senior, meaning superior, water rights. This law is called prior appropriation. Which is the, the common rule in the western United States that the first people to a place to put water to use are the ones who have the legal entitlement to it. So those are mostly agricultural districts and farms. They have sort of the senior property right in the use of water from a river. The Colorado River Compact sidestepped the doctrine of prior appropriation because there was a fear that the big growing regions, especially the Los Angeles coastal plain, Los Angeles and San Diego, and also the farms of the Imperial Valley in California, were going to take all the water too quickly and wouldn't leave enough water for the states of the upper basin, especially the state of Colorado, but also Wyoming and Utah and New Mexico. And so the Colorado River Compact sidestepped prior appropriation and made a fixed allocation to the states of the upper basin and the states of the lower basin um, from the beginning. And the, and the problem was that California was growing very, very rapidly, much more rapidly than Colorado especially. And so the fear was California will grow and take the whole river before Colorado had a chance to grow. Ah. So by carving up the, the supply of water and specifying allocations early, essentially set aside a bunch of water and preserved it for more slow-growing Colorado and put limits and sort of put a cap on what California... Okay, they wanted a level playing field, a level playing field among states. But the Colorado Compact is only one aspect of a much larger story. Because the whole basin's demand for water is higher than what it can healthily supply, the Colorado River has in turn become one of the most stringently managed rivers in the world. There are numerous compacts, federal laws, court decisions, decrees, contracts, and guidelines that have been developed since the 1922 Compact that dictate the challenging management of the Colorado River, collectively known as the Law of the River. The challenges that are produced from the Colorado River Compact 
is essentially how to manage growth, typically urban growth, and agricultural growth and agricultural production within the water budget that is allowed. So there are a variety of rules and contracts and procedures that have been developed since 1922 that are collectively known as the law of the river. These documents taken as a whole outline who gets water, when they get it, how much they get it, and what it can be used for. So currently, as climate change is coming in, as drought is affecting us, and the amount, the full volume of the water available on the river is going down, we must revisit the law of the river in order to begin tweaking the rules and the procedures and the processes and agreements that are in place in order to help us live with less supplies. Because of each basin's varying water needs and management, it is important to mention the main decrees within each basin, starting with the upper basin. The states of the upper basin came together in the late 1940s to negotiate the Upper Colorado River Basin Compact, which is an agreement among the four upper basin states, Utah, Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico, to divide their share of the river. So the big Colorado River Compact left 7.5 million acre feet. And then the Upper Basin Compact then divides that water among the states of the Upper Basin. Rather than making the mistake of the Colorado River Basin and allocating based on a total amount of water, the Upper Basin states did it on a percentage basis, which kind of recognized that there might be less water than we're talking about. And if that happens, everybody has to reduce their use by like percentage. So this proportionality became the the important feature. But then the upper basin management is really different than the lower basin because the upper basin, each of the states is itself at a headwaters. And so management within each state is just water within the state. It starts in a snowpack in a valley above Carbondale and it comes down and irrigators divert at various places along the way. And so management in the upper basin is very decentralized within each state and then among each state. And so it essentially requires this sort of collaborative approach. This percentage method embodies a significant level of collaboration because, despite the upper basin states being headwater states, their allocations require considerations within each state for the designated percentages of states downstream. This whole system thinking is a good example of collaboration in action. Now to discuss the lower basin, whose water management is based off of the Boulder Canyon Project Act, which ratified the Colorado Compact, enabled the All-American Irrigation Canal, and allowed lower basin cities to bloom. In 1928, the Boulder Canyon Project Act was established to allocate the water among the lower basin states. So the importance of that Boulder Canyon Act is that it divided the lower basin's 7.5 million acre feet between Arizona, California, and Nevada. 4.4 million acre feet for California, 2.8 million acre feet for Arizona, and 300,000 acre feet for Nevada, which is water that goes to Las Vegas area and southern Nevada. And that water is centrally managed because all of that water comes from Hoover Dam and Lake Mead. So you have literally the federal government with its control on the spigot delivering water to each of those users in the specified amounts. 
It is also important to mention that below the lower basin, there are additional allocations to Mexico. Later, in 1944, an additional allocation was given to Mexico, because that's where the river ends, is in Mexico. This additional allocation to Mexico is 1.5 million acre-feet. This puts the Colorado River's allocations at 16.5 million acre-feet a year. But the river cannot sustainably give this much water. The river rarely even has 13 million acre-feet flowing through it at once. Here is John and Amy with more on this aspect of the Colorado Compact. It's tremendously flawed because on paper there's more water rights allocated and therefore people built more farms and cities depending on an expectation of this water than there actually is water in the river. And so now we have these problems with shrinking reservoirs because to try to meet all those needs, we just drain our reservoirs. In 1922, when the Colorado River Compact was first written, it was based on an assumption that there was about 15 million acre-feet of water in the river. The upper basin and the lower basin states were given an equal amount of water, 7.5 million acre-feet each, which equals 15 million acre-feet. Unfortunately, that number, that 15 million acre-feet number, was derived from climate records that suggested that there was much more water in the river than there actually is. Because that math that was done was based on one of the wettest decades in the last hundred years. It turns out that there's not as much water in the river. And so this could be characterized as essentially, we thought we had more money in the bank than we actually do. And the upper basin hasn't yet grown into its full bank account, so to speak, while the lower basin currently overdraws on its bank account. So there is a a lot of negotiation that has to take place between the lower basin and the upper basin to make sure that each of those basins stays within their savings account. In both the upper and the lower basin, there's a growing need to come to grips with the problem posed by the allocation of the Colorado River Compact and the fact that we allocated more water than the river has to give. And so in the long run... There's going to be a need for everyone who's using Colorado River water now, I think, to use less of it. This is already really clearly recognized in the lower basin. It's just a question of negotiating the details. This goes by the name the Drought Contingency Plan, which is is an effort to reduce allocations, reduce use of water as Lake Mead drops. And the states of the lower basin are, you know, pretty successful at this. We're on track to for this to be one of the lowest Colorado River water use years in decades as people work on this. And because of the lower basin's excessive water needs, negotiations, and cooperation are needed between the two basins to keep the basins functioning as a whole. We need to listen to and respect all concerns, needs, and requests to cooperate. And I was pleasantly shocked when both Amy and John's answers to the next question nearly lined up. What will success look like for the Colorado Basin? What opportunities lie in front of us to ensure a healthy Colorado River? So success for me is not viewing what we need to do in the Colorado River Basin as a particular problem to be solved, and then it will be solved and that will be done. Success involves the nurturing and development of these collaborative, cooperative institutions around figuring out how to continue to adapt to the ever-changing situations in a way that bring us 
the resilience that we need to survive the shocks that are going to come, a resilient collaborative system that gives us the flexibility to adapt to what will be an ever-changing set of circumstances. In answering the question of what would success look like in the Colorado River Basin, I think the answer begins with finding a way for everybody to come together collectively and acknowledge that we live in a leaner reality than we at first thought. When the 1922 compact was written, there was an assumption and a vision that there was a lot more water available than there actually is. So success would look like, first, that the region as a whole, the region collectively, sees itself as one. That second, the Colorado River Basin inhabitants acknowledge that we live in leaner times, that there is not as much water available, and that there is more unpredictability due to climate change and drought. And that three, after we've acknowledged that we live in leaner times and we've acknowledged that we are in fact all in it together, that the basin is able to come together from the smallest level of a family or a city, a tribe or an irrigation district, up to the state level, to the lower basin and upper basin levels, to the entire basin, come together in those different scales and figure out a way to live within our means and live within our means in a way that respects everybody involved, that respects the role of the tribes, agriculture, municipalities, the environment, and Mexico, so that each of those players and each of those inhabitants of this basin has an equal seat at the table and an equal voice in how to adapt and change and evolve for our current times. I just think it's important for us to be mindful and aware of what these rivers are and how we use this water and that the river is not only the water in the river itself, which we have to love or nurture and care for, but it's also what we do when we take the water out of the river and use it for these other really important valuable things, whether it's growing our food or enabling us to have the cities that we love to live in. So we need to think about all of these things as being of value and how do we collaborate together to preserve them all. We are at a pivotal point in history that will dictate how we manage and think about our water long into the future. So I encourage you to get involved in the conversations in any and all ways that you can. This episode has been an attempt to spread the contagious hope and impassioned activism that belongs to water advocates like Amy and John. Thank you for listening to We Are Rivers, a podcast series brought to you by American Rivers. Tune in to our next episode to learn more about the rivers that connect us.